Before we jump in, I'm going to read a little bit of what I've been writing. We're going to read just a portion of Luke. So if you want to go ahead and flip over to Luke 1, we're going to read a portion of that, very small portion. And, um, and then I'm actually going to read uh, a little uh, story, I guess you would say, out of this book. It looks like a book that you would find in your old Sunday school class when you were growing up, right? And it is by an author named Alexander White. If you haven't heard of him, uh, he was an amazing author. Not just like Christian author. He wrote a lot of other literature as well. But he took a book and he basically went to the main characters throughout the Bible. And almost in Midrash, uh, he doesn't claim for this to be on the same level as Midrash. But anyway, almost in that fashion, kind of takes the biblical narrative and expands it in a way that just gets you thinking. So it's not even necessarily that he's, he's aiming at uh, historical accuracy. He's more aiming at the imagination. And so he writes about Mary and Joseph pre-birth of Jesus in, uh, in this book. And I wanted to read a portion of it to you because I think it'll really get you thinking about what we're just celebrating, what we're going into. Specifically today, get you thinking about what would have been going through the mind of Mary and Joseph as they have found out that they're going to parent the Son of God. They're going to parent God. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, before I read that, let me just read you a little bit of, of what I wrote for today. We'll read a portion of Luke, and then I'll read that, and we'll be done. So here we go. The original Christmas story setting is not all that different from today's Christmas story setting. Likewise, the need for Christmas today is just as prevalent as 2,000 or so years ago. But before we get to that, let me give you some insight into my personal encounter with the Christmas story, or what I call the magic of Christmas. Christmas has always been my favorite time of year. Since I was a young child, I remember being enthralled by the wonder and expectancy of Christmas. The lights, the time with family, the meals, the rest, etc. carry a general lightness. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? There's not a lot of heaviness around Christmas. At Christmas, no one was worried about work or anything else that would normally weigh you down. All that mattered was family, friends, happiness, and giving. However, with all of these or excuse me, while all of these are a result of what Christmas is about, they aren't what Christmas is actually about. It wasn't until a couple of years ago that I finally encountered the magic of Christmas in a song that I had heard my whole life. That song was O Little Town of Bethlehem, best recorded by, in my opinion, Nat King Cole. If you haven't heard that, go check it out. And then once you start listening to it, you'll realize you've actually heard it. Um, the name might not be familiar, but you need to get yourself familiar with it because, in my opinion, it's the best Christmas album. So go check it out. Specifically, in that song, the lines, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That did it. It gripped me and it healed me. That year had been tough with us going through a pandemic where every decision that I made was essentially wrong. And not only that, we were only a couple of years into pastoring when the pandemic hit. So we were just now, I mean, back then we were figuring out how to be pastors. And then not only were we figuring out how to be pastors, we entered into the pandemic where suddenly every decision was wrong or at least polarizing. Yet in this moment, in that moment in a song I heard my whole life, I actually felt peace and goodwill come to me. The odd thing is I heard this song and I had it memorized for, for years. 
I knew it because I had heard it my whole life. Why then did it grip me at that point like it did? And I want to read a little portion of my um, new book that will kind of give you a little more insight into my thinking with this particular song and, and honestly how the magic of Christmas has kind of been stripped away lately. So this is on, starting on page six in the second paragraph of the new book, if, you're, if you have it and want to follow along. <laughs> it's not that typical of our fast-paced postmodern lifestyles. We live in a constant lullaby-affected mindset. What I mean is we miss things that are right in front of us simply because we're used to them or have heard them over and over. So it is with the Christmas story. If you're like me, you've grown up around the Christmas story. Every year after Thanksgiving, we put up lights, we hang ornaments on the tree, we exchange gifts, we sing carols, we eat food, and of course we read the Christmas story. Christmas has become so commercialized in the last century that it is now all about the big guy in the red suit, the expensive credit card bills, and happiness by way of the almighty dollar, to use the line from Miracle on 34th Street, which me and my wife have probably already watched by the time that you're watching this video because it's her favorite Christmas movie. So, anyway, the magic of Christmas today is found under the tree on Christmas morning, and I am not, to be clear, saying that we should do away with these traditions. I love those traditions, okay? I'm not saying we should do away with them. Although we, we could live without the credit card bills. We definitely could live without those. However, I am curious as to how we got to the place where we celebrate the birth of Christ via things that have, in reality, nothing to do with God becoming a baby that was placed in the Passover lamb's manger in the middle of nowhere, Israel, or Bethlehem. We'll get to the Passover lamb's manger in the, in the weeks to come. Um, some portions of Christianity have answered this divergent, divergence with overt legalism. You will not find a tree or a gift in the homes of these devoted followers of a way. Certainly no mention of the jolly old elf. However, this commitment to legalistic ideologies is the same type of enchantment that commercialization has leveraged to steal the original Christmas story from the minds of generations. That is a loss of the intended magic of Christmas by focusing on another story, whether it be legalism or consumerism. Sure, some would argue that many of our Christmas traditions are pagan practices that have deceptively made their way into the church through evil inspiration. This argument, though valiant, is also philosophically and historically off. Throughout every generation, all the way back to the book of Genesis, God's people have taken ideas and stories from the world around them and reoriented them within the story of God. Examples abound in the Old Testament from the creation poems, which are strikingly similar to older creation stories from the ancient Near East, or to the flood story, which is likewise similar to older flood stories such as the Epic of Gilgamesh from Mesopotamia. This doesn't mean that the Bible is not true, or not real, or not even historically accurate. On the contrary, it means the Bible took well-known ideas about the world and reoriented them within the story of the one true God. And that is what we must do with this Christmas story. I was having a conversation with someone a couple of days ago, and, uh, and I told them it would help us so much with under, understanding the New Testament if the Gospels were actually placed at the end of the Old Testament rather than the beginning of the New Testament. Think of how that would mess with you. What if the Old Testament ended with John, right, the end of John, and then the New Testament started with the church in the book of Acts? That would radically redeem how we think of a lot of stuff, particularly in the Old Testament. 
And we spoke to this at the time of this recording this past Tuesday night when Matt shared about the floods, when we were talking through those stories, that the, the Hebrew way of writing was very, um, the way that they shared even history was to communicate an idea. So it, it, the West is concerned with giving you historical facts, and even the New Testament really stands up to this, okay? The New Testament is about there was a man named Jesus, he was killed, he was resurrected, there was a church, there was a day of Pentecost. Um, here's how we know this. There's these eyewitnesses, etc. The New Testament, that's, that's how it's written. The Old Testament, though, is written over a much broader span of time and primarily written, if not entirely written, in Babylonian exile, looking back into some of these oral traditions that they've carried along along the way and they're taking these traditions and they're placing them within the story of we've been exiled from the land. We might even say the garden, which is the land that's the promised land flow with milk and honey. We've been kicked out of that land. We're in exile or in slavery. Now you're hearing some Egypt stuff. The Lord will bring us back. But when he brings us back, we cannot make the same mistakes so they're taking these well-known ideas in the world around them, whether it be a flood, whether it be creation, whether it be exodus, whether it be temple, things that have been orally passed down from generation to generation, and some things that are just common knowledge throughout the entire, uh, at least for them, known world. And they're taking all the story and they're placing it within this story of God, particularly God, his people, his people being enslaved, and then God redeeming them. And when you take this throughout the Old Testament, you see this over and over and over and over and over, the story of God, relationship with his people, his people fall, his people are you know, punished because of whatever they you know, did or because of their falling, and then God redeeming over and over and over and over and over and over and over until you get to Jesus. And Jesus is different because Jesus isn't going to just deliver this people from what they are um, historically against, which in that time was the Romans, okay? He, 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 didn't, he wasn't necessarily coming with the concern to free them from Rome to give them their land back. Jesus is different because this time God wasn't going to um, fix the, the fruit of what they had done, okay? He was going to fix the root of what caused them to continually turn away from him, which ultimately was, of course, sin. And so this is where we get in Matthew when uh, when the angel goes to Joseph to tell him to marry, and we're going to hit this in a second, but when, jo when the angel goes to Joseph, he says, Joseph, son of David, okay? That means Jesus will be of the line of David. So that's a major statement. I have not forgotten my promise to David, Joseph, son of David. Uh, your wife or your soon-to-be wife will conceive. It's from the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, uh, you are to name him Jesus, which is from the same derivative as Joshua. Who was Joshua? Joshua was the one that delivered them from the wilderness and led them into the promised land, right? So this new Joshua, if you will, will deliver the people from what? Not from Rome, from their sin, which means not only is he going to not deliver them from Rome, He's actually going to invite even their enemies into this new promised land we call the kingdom of God, okay? 
amazing story. But before we get into all that in the coming weeks, I want you to go to Luke, hopefully you're there by now, chapter 1, and I'm going to read you just a short portion of this encounter with Mary. So um, let's go to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. 26. Here we go. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Joseph of the house of David. There it is again. Why is pointing out David so important? Because all of the people knew that the Messiah to come, the, the eternal king, was to be from the line of David because that's what God promised. Go back and read uh, Jeremiah 33 and you'll see this uh, blatantly. But... Uh, the New Testament authors here in Luke, Matthew does the same thing, are, are very adamant about Joseph, especially, who would be his father, who would name him and give him essentially the essence of who he was in naming him. It's what the Jews believe, still believe, um, that this was from David, which meant, meant Jesus would be from David, which meant Jesus, Jesus would be in line to fulfill the eternal promise of God. Amazing. Okay, so here we go. Uh, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Okay? The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Um, it's, it's, possible, it's possible that what the angel is saying here by saying the Lord is with you is that he's essentially saying, um, Jesus was already within her, which is which is possibly why she was perplexed, okay? So anyway, little nugget. Uh, verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Okay, there's all the David stuff right there, okay? Um, he will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will, uh, excuse me, of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. The Son of God. Okay? Um, and let me keep finish this out, and then I'll go back. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible for God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. That's major. Let it be according to your word. Then the angel departed, and I'm going to read this last verse. In those days, Mary set out and went, to, went with haste, to the Judean town in the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. In those days, Mary set out. Now, here's something that you maybe have never noticed. I certainly have never noticed until I started studying this. Um, who is missing when Mary sets out? Joseph. Interesting, right? Very interesting. Uh, could it be that Mary finds this out? She is extremely nervous, and we're about to read this in the portion of Alexander White, so, you know, I'm kind of giving you a little spoiler, but could it be that she's extremely nervous, right? So she sets out to find sort of a mother figure. A lot of scholars have wrestled with why she didn't go to her actual mother. Um, a, a couple of hypotheses are, theories are, 
uh, she was uh, dead. She didn't have a mother at that time, so that's why she goes to Elizabeth. Some other theories are her mother would have been um, would have essentially disowned her because she was pregnant, but she wasn't married, which in that culture was a subject possibly to death. So I mean, Mary was in a very odd pickle. She was pregnant. She wasn't married yet, and so you know, I mean, this was this was a major deal to her. That's why the angel has to say, "Don't be afraid." And so, uh, it's possible. The other theory is that she was afraid to go to her mom, but she goes to Elizabeth because Zachariah is a priest. And maybe she would have understood more. Either way, and, and honestly, the last theory is since the angel included Elizabeth in that uh, prophetic word that he was given to Mary that she immediately had this connection with Elizabeth and she went to her. Either way, Joseph isn't there. Is it possible that when Mary leaves to figure this out, to get a grip on this, that Joseph remains because he's not sure, go to Matthew, the beginning of Matthew, Joseph isn't sure whether or not he should marry her and has kind of decided, according to Matthew, that he's going to let her go quietly. And could it be that when Mary leaves, Joseph, when he's alone, has this encounter with the same angel in a dream, same messenger, where he's told the exact same thing and that he should be able to essentially trust the word that's coming through his soon-to-be wife, Mary. Because jo- there was a reason Joseph was marrying Mo- uh, Mary. It's because he loved her. I mean, to him, there was no other woman for him. It was just Mary. He was in love. So letting her go was not something he was excited about, right? It was, it was his love. It's something that caused him, had to cause him great anguish. But how could he marry a woman who was pregnant? And obviously, there's only one other, there's only one way to get pregnant, right? And it's to have another man in, in our terms. So it's really interesting that Mary goes by herself. Let me point out a couple of things, then I'll read Alexander White and there will be none. Um, number one, the, uh, the angel says the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. That is exact language of Genesis 1. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was void and formless, darkness covering the deep. The Spirit hovered or overshadowed the waters. Okay? And in a womb, what is in a womb other than the baby? Waters. So the Spirit will overshadow. Okay? So now we're thinking recreation, new creation, we might even say. Right? Um, and the child will be uh, that will be born to you, he will be called the Son of of God. Paul calls Jesus the new Adam. Here's what uh, Luke's, I believe it's Luke's genealogy says, and let me just read this to you in Luke. Let me get to chapter three, starting in verse 37, chapter three. Um, uh, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahaliel, and son of uh, Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, who was the son of God. Adam, who was the son of God. So in this couple of verses, you have the messenger going to Mary saying, the spirit will overshadow you. You will give birth to the son of God. New creation language in the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, right? But not only that, there was going to be a birth of a new Adam who was the son of God, right? A new Adam that would ultimately, according to Matthew, when he when the angel goes to Joseph, take away the sin of the people. And what caused Adam and Eve to lose the trajectory that they were on in being fruitful, multiplying, subdue the earth? Sin. 
So you see this immediate language of undoing and redoing, okay? The Spirit will overshadow you, new creation, or creation language, but, you know, new creation. He will be the Son of God, Adam language. And then in Matthew, he will take away sin, which is what got us in the mess that Adam, the first Adam, was in in the first place, right? Because sin, we've talked about this in the Greek, is uh, hamartia, ha, which is a negative particle, and then meros, which is form or portion, so without portion or without form. Adam and Eve, in the fall, lose their their the fullness of their identity in the image and likeness of God. The new Adam takes on their broken identity so as to restore the fullness of them being in the image and likeness of God. And that's how the story begins. But I want to, despite all of that amazing stuff, okay, from the line of David, I mean, there's just so much prophetic stuff going on. Here's what I want to get you thinking about today. Not even necessarily that stuff, even though that's huge, okay? I do want you to think about that. But what I really want you to think today is what what might have been going through the mind of Mary and Joseph? Because I think a lot of times the Lord will call us or or, or push us even to do things that are absolutely what we are are, are called to do or we're, we're positioned to do, we're anointed to do. But, uh, but a lot of times it is... It calls us into a place of not just uniqueness, of, of things that really no eye has seen before. And our church is a great example of that. I mean, like, like we're doing church in a completely different way, not just to do church in a completely different way, of course, but because we feel this calling to, to bring about a new creation. And that's going to make, at least in the beginning, at least for a while, it's going to make um, people around us that aren't used to a culture that is so kingdom-minded say, what is this? You know what I mean? And maybe even doubt that the Lord wants to move like that in a day like in, in a day like today when, when the church has gone so far away from being presence focused. And um and I, I'm imagining Mary, how how what thoughts would have been going through her head? Um, I'm pregnant, I'm not married, so I, I could be killed. Number two, how can I how can I be a mother to the Son of God? I'm a teenager. How can I be a mother to God? You know what I'm saying? And there had to be fear. There had to be this, this almost this dark dread come over her. And I don't mean dread as in like, oh, I dread that. But I mean like, you know, dread as in like just a an overwhelming weight that I'm going to be responsible for the livelihood of God. I mean, that, that's a heavy weight, right? And now you go to Joseph, who is dealing with the same stuff. How can I father the Son of God? How, I mean, how I'm a carpenter. I'm, a, I'm you know, how, I'm never, I've never even experienced what it means to be 20 yet. How can I father the son of God, you know? But on top of that, for Joseph, not only is he dealing with that, now he's also dealing with is what Mary's telling me true. Mary conceived with God, and she's pregnant, and the child within her is God, and he's going to set people free, and he's the promised one from the entire Old Testament, and he's going to liberate us from our sin, which goes all the way back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden. You know, like I don't know if I don't know about you, I would have a really hard time um, handling that. Okay, I, to put it lightly, I, I would not believe her. I would definitely not believe her. And um, and so let me read to you, and then we'll be done. What Alexander White said, and you can just sit back if you want to close your eyes, if you want to um, do whatever you need to do to get in a posture of just hearing this. And I'm just going to read this. It, it, it writes like a novel. 
And so you're going to hear it like a story. So I just want you to imagine this. this that's my goal. Ellen Davis, who is a professor at Duke Divinity School, she's, she's best friends with my Old Testament professor, one of my favorite professors, um, Dr. Carol Bechtel. They both went to Yale. Um, but she did an essay a long time ago, years ago, and it was about restoring the imagination of preaching. And I read it this week, and, um, and it, was a, it was just so cool how she connected the Hebrew word for heart uh, is actually more closely related to the English word imagination. So every time we're told to lift our hearts, what we're really being told to do is lift our thinking or our imagination to see what we can't see yet, you know? So what I want you to do as I read this, and that's the reason I'm reading this, is to give you kind of a lifted imagination. I want you to to picture what's going on in Mary and Joseph's head. I want you to picture the same. I want you to put yourself in their shoes, and how would you process some of this, okay? So let me read this over you. Uh, and it's older, so it might have some King James sounding you know, stuff here and there, but take it or leave it. St. Matthew and St. Luke, the first and the third evangelists, tell us all that we are told of Mary. They tell us that she was the espoused wife of Joseph, a carpenter of Nazareth, and that the divine call came to her after her espousal to Joseph and before her marriage. What a call it was, and what a prospect it opened up. No sooner was Mary left alone of the angel than she began to realize something of what had been appointed to her and what she was now prepare, excuse me, what she must now prepare herself to pass through. The sharp sword that the aged Simeon afterwards spoke of with such passion was already wedded and was fast approaching her devoted and exposed heart. On a thousand sacred canvases throughout Christendom are shown the angel of the Annunciation presenting Mary with a branch of lily as an emblem of her beauty and as a seal of her purity. But why has no spiritual artist stained the whiteness of the lily with the red blood of a broken heart? For no sooner had the transfiguring light of the angel's presence faded from her sight then a deep and awful darkness began to fall upon Joseph's espoused wife. Surely, if ever a suffering soul had to seek all its righteousness and all its strength in God alone, it was the soul of the Virgin Mary in those terrible days that followed the Annunciation. Blessed among women, as all the time she was, unblemished in soul and in body, like the Paschal Lamb as she was. Like the Paschal Lamb also, she was set apart to be divine, a divine sacrifice and to have a sword thrust through her heart. Mary must have passed through many dark and dreadful days when all she had given or all she had given her to lean upon would seem like a broken reed. Hail, though that art highly favored of the Lord, the angel had said to her, but all that would seem but so many mocking words to her as she saw nothing before her but an open shame and, it might well be, an outcast's death. Remember, death would have been appointed to her if it were found out that she was pregnant outside of marriage. And so fearfully and wonderfully we are made, and so fearfully and wonderfully was the way in which the word was made flesh, that who can tell how all this may have borne on him who was bone of her bone and flesh of her flesh? 
to whom Mary was in all things a mother, as he was in all things to her a son. This is my favorite line from Alexander White as it relates to Mary. Four, hers was the face that unto Christ had most resemblance. Think about that. The Son of God looked most like Mary. That will, that'll preach. <laughs> that will preach. He not only symbolically took on our image and likeness, he literally took on the image and likeness of Mary so that Mary could literally take on the image and likeness of God. Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Joseph's part in all this is told by St. Matthew alone. And as we read that evangelist particular account at that time, we see how sharp the sword which pierced Joseph's soul was also. His heart was broken with this terrible trial, but there was only one course left open to him. Conclude the marriage he could not, but neither could he consent to make Mary a public example. And there was only one left to him, the sad step of revoking the contract and putting her away privately. Joseph's heart must have been torn in two, for Mary had been the woman of all women to him. She had been in his eyes the lily among thorns. And now, to have to treat her like a poisonous weed? The thought of it drove him mad. Oh, why is it that what or whosoever comes at all near Jesus Christ has always to drink such a cup of sorrow. Truly, they who are brother and sister or mother to him must actually take up their cross daily. These are those who go up through great tribulation. Got a little bit more. What a journey that must have been for Mary from Nazareth to Hebron and occupied with what thoughts? Mary's way would lead her, as she's going to Elizabeth, by the way, Mary's way would lead her through Jerusalem. She may have crossed Olivet as the sun was setting. She may have knelt at even in Gethsemane. She may have turned aside to look on the city from Calvary. What a heavy heart she must have carried through all these scenes as she went into the hill country with haste. Only two out of God knew the truth about Mary, an angel in heaven and her own heart on earth. And thus it was that she fled to the mountains of Judah, hoping to find there an aged kinswoman of hers who would receive her word and would somewhat understand her case. As she stumbled on the drunk, or excuse me, as she stumbled on drunk with sorrow, Mary must have recalled and repeated many blessed scriptures, well known to her indeed, but till then little understood. For example, commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Thou shalt keep them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of men. Thou shalt keep them in a pavilion from the strive of tongues. Such a pavilion Mary sought, and for a season found it in a remote and retired household of Zacharias 
and Elizabeth. It is to that meeting, or excuse me, it is to the meeting of Mary and Elizabeth that we owe the Magnificat, the last Old Testament psalm and the first New Testament hymn, which says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. We cannot enter into all Mary's thoughts as she sang that spiritual song any more than she could in her day enter into all our thoughts as we sing it. For noble melody as her Magnificat is, it draws its deepest tones from a time that was still to come. The spirit of Christian prophecy moved her to utter it, but the noblest and fullest prophecy concerning Christ fell far short of the evangelical fulfillment. Just about done. She is a happy maiden who was a mother or a motherly friend much experienced in the ways of the human heart to whom she can tell all her anxieties. A wise, tender, much experienced counselor such as Naomi was to Ruth and Elizabeth to Mary. Was the virgin an orphan? Or was Mary's mother such a woman that Mary could have opened her heart to any stranger rather than her? Be that as it may, Mary found a true mother in Elizabeth of Hebron. Many a holy hour to the women spent together sitting under the terebinths that overhung the dumb Zacharias secluded house. Dumb, remember, because the angel uh, cursed him not to speak until the day John was born, you know, etc. And if at any time their faith was wavered and the thing seemed impossible, was not Zacharias beside them with his sealed lips and his writing table a living witness to the goodness and se severity, excuse me, of God? How Mary and Elizabeth would stagger and reason and rebuke and comfort one another. Now laughing like Sarah and singing like Hannah, let loving and confiding and pious women tell. Last part. This is, this is my favorite part of the story. Sweet as it is to linger in Hebron beside Mary and Elizabeth, our hearts are always drawn back to Joseph in his unspeakable agony. The absent are dear, just as the dead are perfect. And Mary's dear image became to Joseph dearer still, when he could no longer see her face or hear her voice. Because remember, she went to Elizabeth. Nazareth was empty to Joseph. It was worse than empty. Day after day, week after week, Joseph's misery increased. And when, as his wont was, he went up to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, this was amazing. I want you to hear this. Okay? Um... Day after day, week after week, Joseph's misery increased, and when, as his wont was, he went up to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, that made him feel his loneliness and his misery all the more. Mary's sweet presence had often made the holy place still more holy to him, and her voice in the Psalms had, made, had been to him as when an angel sings. On one of those Sabbaths, which the exiled virgin was spending in Hebron, Joseph went up again to the sanctuary in Nazareth, seeking to hide his great grief with God. And we'll end with this a little bit. And this, I feel sure, was the scripture appointed to be read in the synagogue that day. 
This is Alexander White imagining what would have been the scripture that might have been read on the day or one of the days that Joseph goes up to the synagogue by himself with Mary away as he's pondering and agonizing over all that was going on. Could this have been the text that was read in the synagogue on one of those days? Think about this. Ask the sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Joseph's heart was absolutely overwhelmed within him as he listened to that astounding scripture. Never had ear or heart of man heard these amazing words as Joseph heard them that day. And then when he laid himself down to sleep that night, his pillow became like a stone under his head. Not that he was cast out, but he was cast out another. But he had, excuse me, cast out another. And she the best of God's creature. A, and she perhaps... How shall he whisper it even to himself at midnight, the virgin mother of Emmanuel? A better mother he could not have. So speaking to himself till he was terrified at his thoughts, weary with another week's lonely labor, and aged with many weeks' agony and despair, Joseph fell asleep. Then a thing was secretly brought to him, and his ear received a little thereof. There was silence. And he heard a voice saying to him, Joseph, son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Gabriel was sent to reassure Joseph's despairing heart to demand the consummation of the broken off marriage and to announce the incarnation of the Son of God. Now, I know that was a lot. I know that had a little bit of old world language in it. But that really, as I was reading that this week, I thought put me, and hopefully you, in the place where you can imagine what was happening in the mind of those that would raise the Son of God, particularly Joseph. I mean, Mary had her own stuff she was working through. The The possibility of death was one of those, right? But even Joseph had the, the, the added, Joseph could break it off. He could break off the marriage and let her go and do her thing. Or he could trust God. And as he's agonizing over this, I just, I, I just wonder, just like Alexander White said, what would have happened? This seems just like God to go to the synagogue. And as they're reading the text, they, he hears the word. I'm summarizing in Josh's you know, language. Um, ask a sign. The Lord's going to give it to you. Here's the sign. A virgin will give birth and he will be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. Boom. You know what I mean? I mean, that we don't know that. That's all speculation, but it does seem a lot like the Lord. And what's interesting is the language that is used in Matthew is that. 
is that you're to name him Jesus, and then it quotes a prophetic word that says from the Old Testament that he will be called Emmanuel, okay? And so I just wonder, maybe not, maybe so. What, the reason I wanted to stoke your imagination is, one, I wanted to get you to think about the Christmas story because normally we just think about it in, like I read from my book earlier, uh, we think about it in this uh, commercialized way or honestly we think about it in a legalistic way, but we, we completely miss that there is a story here. There is something happening. There are two real people that have been visited by God for the first time in over 400 years that have been visited by God, not only visited by God through an angel, they are visited by God to say that God is going to overshadow them just like in creation, and they're going to be given birth to a new Adam who would be God himself in flesh, and he will set the people free from that which has held them down since the book of Genesis in the very beginning, which is their sin. Right? And I don't know if we can fully grasp the incarnation of the Son of God, which is what we're going to be talking about over the next three weeks, until we sit back and we take a look at this story and see how it happened, how it came to be. Because if I dare say, a lot of you are probably walking through seasons or walking through things when the Lord is moving in ways that look different than what you maybe thought. But not only do they look different, in their difference, the Lord is actually calling you to partner with Him in the things that He is bringing about in your life that look different than what you thought you would see and look different than maybe what a lot of people around you think that you are going to see. Um, at least I can speak from experience. I was told my whole life that I was going to, you know, uh, play music in front of, you know, millions and millions of people, and that was going to be my life. You know, I was going to be the next big worship leader. And, all, and here I am, and I'm pastoring a small church in the middle of Columbia, South Carolina. And listen, I'll choose this over that 100% of the time. And so this looks very different than what I thought this was going to look like 10 years ago. But when you say yes, or think about Mary's response, let it be as you have said. When you say yes to things that even don't make sense, it is, a, it is a breeding ground for new creation. And so I just want to challenge you today to place yourself in that story, wrap your mind around what would have been going on. And at the same time, um, I want to encourage you that you are in that story. Like you're there. The Lord is calling us to venture into some things that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended, and all we have to do is say yes. Mary did nothing to mother the, mother the Son of God except say, let it be as you have said. That's it. That's all she did. And what if our response, every time the Lord shows up to do something new and different and big or even insignificant in moments, when he shows up, if our constant posture is, let it be as you have said, it is going to be where the kingdom begins to invade the earth through our lives. So let me pray over you and we'll be done today. Lord, I thank you for everyone watching this. I thank you for everyone that's a part of the kingdom family that you have placed in the earth today for such a time as this. I pray that we'll take this Thanksgiving season and this Advent season and this Christmas season to heart. 
and let us see that what you are doing today is similar, if not exactly the same as what you were doing then, which is not setting us free from the big bad world. You're actually setting us free from all the stuff keeping us from being the manifested sons and daughters of God that set the world free that is standing on tiptoe waiting for us to be who we're called to be. And so, God, we just say, let it be as you have said today, and we believe we're going to see amazing new creation, kingdom stuff happening in our day and age that's going to call creation back into its design, and we're going to do it by way of our yes and by way of our rest. We love you in your name. Amen. Let me be the first to tell you, Merry Christmas season. I hope that you are getting all the trees and the decorations out if you haven't already. Obviously, I have. I'm in my office recording this, and, uh, and I love you guys. Have fun with your family, and I'll see you Tuesday.